Thanks for joining me again. Back for another episode of the Super Weird, the Super Paranormal, the Super Unknown. This is Paranormally Speaking with your host, Neil Parks. I'm an award-winning author, screenwriter, writer-writer in general, left-writer because I'm left-handed, ghost-writer because I write about ghosts, professional artist, historian, paranormal expert, and all about a man all about town. So go ahead, buckle up. This is going to be an interesting ride. Mythic humanoids are mythological creatures that are part human or that resemble humans through appearance or character. The multitude of mythic humanoids can be divided into four categories. The first one, human-skinned humanoids. These humanoids can pass unnoticed in human society if their attributes are small enough to go unnoticed. Their ears may be slightly misshaped, their eyes may not line up, or their height may not measure up, but their difference in appearance can be attributed to genetic mistakes or mutation. Sometimes they live separated from society, live in alternative realities, or appear at night or under specific circumstances. This category includes witches, elves, fairies, nymphs, house spirits, semi-beings, and imps. Monster skin humanoids is another category. Portions of these humanoids are clearly not of human make. They may have drastic differences in skin color and eye type and may have scales, fur, claws, and tails. The average person may find them quite unpleasant and untrustworthy because they are not entirely human. An example is the Kyubi no Kistun found in Japanese folklore or something as close to the heartland of Ohio a small devil-looking creature with a tail that resembles a red child. The third category, monstrous humanoids. These humanoids are likely to instill fear and revulsion. They may walk, talk, and think like a human, but they are obviously not human. Some examples of these monsters are demons and vampires. Temporary humanoids. Temporary form style. These are creatures that may temporarily disguise or transform into a human shape, but have entirely different true forms. A home security camera captured tiny humanoid creatures frolicking on a driveway in Dallas, Texas this week. Startling footage was recently captured by a security camera outside a Dallas, Texas home. While some might think that the video simply depicts extraterrestrial visitors, or even birds. There's a possibility that they are elves that have broken through the extra-dimensional barrier to frolic in our driveways. Now, ironically, next to this subdivision where this house is located, uh, there is a sacred site nearby, um, an Indian earthwork from uh, original, original ancient inhabitants. And they and their folklore storytelling have passed down for generations tales and stories of strange humanoid creatures that would visit at night um, as a means of warning or for good luck. Now, this story was sent to me from R. No Sleep. It's titled Small Humanoids. Am I the only one seeing these creatures running around? They are small little humans with pale gray skin, and they run around on all fours. Their faces look like humans, but there's something different. But I can't put my finger on 
how to describe it. I really don't effing know. But the best way I can describe them without babbling like an idiot are the Falmer from the Elder Scrolls, except only a foot or so in difference. They've infested my house, and they watch me constantly. They're probably seeing me type this up right now. Anyways, I've heard them speak. It's a small and hushed little voice, but I've heard them say a word, and then they say it a lot to each other. Eat. I have no clue what the F they eat, but the food in my cabinet hasn't been eaten. Cheez-Its, crackers, small stuff that rats and mice would orgasm over. I might try and tape them when I sleep to see if they're more active at night. Anyways, I've started noticing them about a day ago. I first saw them scampering outside around the convenience store at about 1.30ish. I'll fill you in when I know more. Interesting story. Thank you for sharing that. Are no sleep. Here's the $10 million question. Did U.S. Special Forces kill a giant in Kandahar? Several conspiracy theory-oriented websites are claiming a biblical giant, much like Goliath, with flaming red hair, was killed by U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. United States Special Forces allegedly killed this giant in Kandahar in 2002, and the government has been trying to cover it up, according to these sources. Several personalities and websites dedicated to discussing supernatural myths and conspiracy theories began claiming in 2016 that an American Special Forces soldier serving in Kandahar, Afghanistan, was killed in 2002 by a 1,100-pound, blade-wielding, 12-foot-tall giant equal or equivalent to the Old Testament times before the giant itself was taken down by the military. A Department of Defense spokesperson told them they had no record of such an incident. <clears throat> and I quote, We do not have any record or information about a special forces member killed by a giant in Kandahar. Current interest in the story appears to have been generated from a video created by L.A. Maruzili, an author blogger and filmmaker determined to link modern times with biblical creatures and prophecies. On the 13th of August 2016, he posted an episode on YouTube of his series, Watchers, in which he claims to interview a military contractor or soldier who witnessed the blade-wielding giant on Kandahar <coughs> kill another soldier before being downed by troops, whisked away by a transport aircraft and hidden away from public view. Marzuli makes the case that the giant was a Nephilim, which were described in the book of Genesis as offspring of gods and human women who inhabited Canaan in the time of the Israelite conquest. But when it comes down to details, he's vague, saying he interviewed the unnamed man at an undisclosed location on an unknown date. The interviewee, who he claims shot and killed the giant, doesn't give any details on the location of the alleged incident, other than to say it was a remote location in Afghanistan in 2002. He claims that he and others were sent to look for a missing patrol when they saw a scarlet-haired giant emerge from a cave and skewer one of their friends, who he called Dan, with a large blade. In the Army statement, it's sufficient, isn't sufficient. The only service member with the first name Dan or Daniel who died in Kandahar in 2002 was killed along with three others. 
in an accident involving the clearing and disposal of explosives. There are no incidents on the Department of Defense press release page in which all military casualties are listed, involving a giant, likewise. There are no reports of an entire patrol disappearing in Afghanistan at that time either. Marzulli's video about the alleged giant incident, replete and growling animation, can be seen on the website provided. Available to order now, my first audiobook, Neil Parks presents Truly Terrifying Tales, narrated by me. It's ready to order and download on bandcamp.com. My other books, of course, are always available to order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and lulu.com. You can also order t-shirts that I designed that I normally sell at conventions, festivals, lectures, and my book signings. I always have the 9-inch tall 3D printed Bigfoot silhouettes available, and last spring my first children's book was released. It was written by my good friend and fellow author R.L. Walker. I illustrated this book, and it was a major shift in gears for me, considering that my writing and art style has always been dark and scary. To order any of what I just mentioned, you can also go to my email, which is parksparanormal at gmail.com. That is parksparanormal at gmail.com. Standing by. The CIA unexpectedly releases all of its documents on UFOs. The CIA claims this is every document it has collected through the decades, but such a claim is impossible to truly verify. All of the CIA's publicly available documents on unidentified flying objects is now available to be downloaded. The website, The Black Fault, ran by John Greenwald Jr., has published a downloadable archive of every instance of unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, the government classification for UFOs. All the files are available online through the Black Vault's website and directly on the CIA government website. Greenwald scanned thousands of pages by hand following approximately 10,000 Freedom of Information Acts, FOIA, levied at multiple agencies, including the CIA, which have resulted in the 2.2 million pages uploaded to the Black Vault. Around 20 years ago, I had for, fought for years, he says, to get additional UFO records released from the CIA, Greenwald told Motherboard via email. It was like pulling teeth. I went around and around with them to try and do so. Finally achieving it, I received a large box of a couple of thousand pages, and I had to scan each one of them one page at a time, and none of it was really redacted. The Black Vault purchased a CD-ROM containing both previously released recordings from the CIA and videos, as well as those it provided from FOIA requests, it said in its blog post. The CIA claims that this is all the documents the agency has on file, but the Black Vault says there is no way to verify that. Researchers and curious minds alike prefer simplicity and accessibility when they look at data dumps such as these. The CIA has made it incredibly difficult to use their records in a reasonable manner. However, all the information is there if you dig for it. They offer a format that is very outdated. The New American Religion of UFOs. Belief in aliens is like faith in religion and may come to replace it, according to some. 
Last week, the New York Times published a viral article about reports of UFOs off the coast in 2014 and 2015 and included an interview with five Navy pilots who witnessed and in some cases recorded mysterious flying objects with no visible engine or infrared exhaust plumes that appeared to reach 30,000 feet and hypersonic speeds. No one is quite sure what they saw, but the sightings are striking, and they're part of a growing fascination with the possibility of intelligent alien life. According to Diana Pascula, a professor at the University of North Carolina and author of the new book, American Cosmic, belief in UFOs and extraterrestrials is becoming a kind of religion, she says, and it isn't nearly as fringe as you might think. More than half of American adults and over 60% of young Americans believe in intelligent extraterrestrial life. This tracks pretty closely with the belief in God, she says. And if Pascula is right, that's not an accident. Her book isn't so much about the truth of UFOs or aliens. It is about what the appeal of belief in those things says about our culture and the shifting roles of religion and technology in it. On the surface, it's a book about the popularity of belief in aliens, but it's really a deep look at how myths and religions are created in the first place and how human beings deal with unexplainable experiences. A lightly edited transcript of the conversation with Pascula follows. Uh, you describe belief in UFOs and aliens as the latest manifestation of a very old impulse, a religious impulse. What is it about extraterrestrials that captivates so many people? Pascula goes on to say, one way we can make sense of this by using a very old but functional definition of religion as simply the belief in non-human and supernatural intelligent beings that often descend from the sky. There are many definitions of religion, but this one is pretty standard. There is another distinction about belief in non-human extraterrestrial intelligence or UFO inhabitants that makes it distinct from the types of religions with which we are most familiar. Um, a historian of Catholicism, for instance, would say uh, what they find when they interact with people in Catholic communities is that they have faith that Jesus walked on water and that the Virgin Mary uh, apparitions were true. But there's some uh, something very different about the UFO narrative. Here we have people who are actual scientists like Ellen Stolfen, the former chief scientist at NASA. Uh, they are uh, This person's willing to go on TV and basically make announcements like, we are going to find extraterrestrial life. Now she's not exactly uh, talking about the intelligent extraterrestrial life, but that's not how many people interpret her anyway. She says that they're going to find life. They're going to find inhabitable planets and things like that. But So that gives this type of religious religiosity a far more powerful bite than the traditional religions which are based on faith and things unseen and unfound but the belief that ufos and aliens are potentially true and could potentially be proven makes this a uniquely powerful narrative for the people who believe in it it is fair to call this new form of religion uh, a religion i i would say so uh, there are two incredible modern scientists such as alan hynek and Joaquiz Valil, who reviewed the idea. Hynek passed away in 1986, but he actually, uh, the star character in the History Channel show Project Blue Book. Valil is still here, and he's an astronomer and a computer scientist who worked on Arpanet, which was a military precursor to the Internet. 
basically Hynek and Villiel called themselves the Invisible College. Once they started to believe the things they were investigating were somehow either extraterrestrial or interdimensional, they were part of a group of scientists that were known to each other but were not known to the general public who quietly pursued the research of their own time. So once uh, you start engaging with uh, these scientists who are doing this type of work, who believe in the reality of extraterrestrial intelligence, who believe they were reverse engineering technology from what they insisted was alien aircraft, it, it would be stunning for all of us to bear witness to this and probably cause some sort of a cataclysmic event where people are often shooting each other, religions are battling other religions for supremacy, and if we all of a sudden have a mothership appear out of the sky out of nowhere, you're going to have all of these gun-crazy Americans or those from other countries that are gun-crazy uh, popping off rounds at the unknown and possibly creating an interstellar war. That's something that we don't really need to see in our lifetime, or any lifetime for that matter. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the internet. The devil made them do it. Ten crimes blamed on demonic possession. It is part of accepted colloquial speech to blame personal tragedy or personal weakness on demons. When someone commits suicide, people often speak about the dead's battle with their own demons. When someone commits a foul, bloody deed, another set of demons are invoked, the kind that warp minds and force otherwise good and decent souls to carry out murder. Both the Christian and secular worldviews see demons as malefic parasites that destroy human goodness. They, of course, debate whether or not demons are real or just mental illness. Some criminals believe in demons, and some even believe in demons so much that they have blamed their behavior on demonic possession. The case of David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam, is the most well-known example of a serial killer blaming a demon for their actions. In that case, Berkowitz blamed the demon that had possessed Sam, his neighbor's dog. The following ten cases are nowhere near as famous as the son of Sam, but they all feature murderers and the demons that supposedly drove them to kill. For starters, the murder of Lauren Landavatsko, 13-year-old Lauren, was walking with her friend, 13-year-old Michaela Smith, on September 2, 2006. The pair were walking home after school along a typically suburban footpath. At some point, the two girls were approached by a young man in a car. That man was 20-year-old Cody Lott. Lott would later give two explanations for why he did what he did that day. He was jealous because Landa Vasco seemed to have a boyfriend, and the devil wanted him to do it. Regardless of which one is being the truth, Lot opened fire on both girls with a twenty-two rifle. Smith, who managed to survive the ambush, told police that Lot made eye contact with her first before pulling the trigger. Eyewitnesses 
also claimed that Lot shot Ladzinsatsko first before shooting her again after wounding Smith. At his 2018 trial, Lot repeated that it was the devil that helped him to plan the shooting. The prosecution struck the idea that Lot was mentally unstable and angry over his inability to find a romantic partner. In one of the weirder aspects of the trial, Lot's mother and stepfather sued the city of Wichita Falls, Texas, in order to retrieve the murder weapon. According to them, the 22 rifle that Lot had used in the murder had been stolen from their apartment. Lot was first at first found mentally unfit to stand trial and was sent to the maximum security unit of Texas Mental Hospital. Then, in September 2018, a Fort Worth jury found Lot guilty of the murder of Lauren Lavdazanko. Plus, they found him guilty of aggravated assault and the shooting of Michaela Smith. Lot, the man who claimed to have talked with the devil, was sentenced to life in prison. Number nine, the attack on Peter Cherm. According to his grieving family, 65-year-old Peter Cherm was a beloved father and grandfather. 17-year-old Tommy Smith did not care about any of this. The only thing he cared about on February 24, 2015, was getting the keys to Cherm's Range Rover. When Cherm stepped in to stop the young punk from stealing his vehicle, Smith, who had already been convicted of a staggering 57 offenses, pulled out a knife and stabbed Cherm in the head, back, neck, chest, and arms. The stabbing attack was so frenzied that Smith actually snapped the 8-inch knife in two. Smith went on trial for attempted murder in March 2016. Smith told the Wolverhampton Crown Court that he was not responsible for his actions and he had been possessed by a demon on that terrible day. The court more than likely did not buy the possession story, but they did take into account that Smith had been previously diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. As such, he was cleared of the charge of attempted murder. He was, however, convicted of grievous bodily harm and burglary. Cherm was in the courtroom for Smith's sentencing, despite being blind in one eye and having survived a serious stroke as a result of Smith's onslaught. Rather than a jail cell... Smith was sent to a secure mental hospital for an indefinite period of time. The failed exorcism of Michael Taylor is our number eight. Believe it or not, in our secular age, exorcisms are on the rise. Last year, it was reported that the Roman Catholic Church in the United States was seeing a rise in the overall number of exorcisms throughout the country. And unfortunately there is a shortage of exorcists. And in a, of Indianapolis alone received 1,700 exorcism requests between January and December of 2019. But back in 1974, one year before the release of the classic film, The Exorcist, an exorcism was carried out in the sleepy town of Asat, West Yorkshire, England. The possessed subject was one Michael Taylor, a 31-year-old married father of five children. Most who knew Taylor described him as a cheery fellow, although he was prone to fits of depression. Now and then, for the most part, of these black moods were the result of back injury and made it hard for Taylor to maintain steady employment. 
Things began to change in the Taylor household when they joined the Christian Fellowship Group, a local church organization. The previously irreligious Michael began regularly attending church services. One of the reasons for his dramatic change was 21-year-old Marie Robinson, the group's preacher. Robinson convinced her congregation that the power of God could drive out their demons. Outside of these meetings, some in Osset began to claim that Robinson and Taylor were carrying out an affair. The more Taylor became involved with Robinson, the more his attitude began to change. The once chipper man became easily irritated and foul-tempered. Things came to a head when Taylor and Robinson were found naked together. Taylor blamed this on an evil presence within himself, and local Anglican vicar was called to perform an exorcism. During an all-night ceremony in October of 1974, the vicar other ministers apparently drove out 40 demons, including the demons of bestiality, incest, lewdness, and blasphemy. However, the exhausted clergyman decided to go home, even though they still believed that three demons, murder, violence, and insanity, were still in Taylor. A few hours later, Taylor was found covered in blood, which he claimed belonged to Satan himself. The blood, in fact, belonged to his wife, Christine, those mutilated, whose mutilated body was later discovered in the Taylor home. Taylor was ultimately found not guilty by reason of insanity. Number seven, the murder of Angie Escobar. On September 10th, 2015, a body was discovered inside of an abandoned car in the Whitestone section of Queens, New York. The body belonged to 28-year-old Angie Escobar, who had died after being stabbed some 80 times. The medical examiner in the case found that Angie had been killed four days prior to her discovery. Before long, the New York Police Department zeroed in on a suspect, 31-year-old Luis Zambrano of Flushing, Queens. Zambrano was arrested on September 18th after fleeing to Virginia. Zambrano ultimately confessed to police that he had stabbed Escobar with a pair of scissors after the single mother admitted that she wanted to break off their relationship. In pleading guilty, Zambrano claimed that he had been possessed by a demon at the time of mur the murder. Zambrano also blamed trust issues for his actions. Number six, mommy is a killer. Elizabeta Plaskowatske of Naperville, Illinois, began hearing voices sometime before October 30th, 2012. These voices told Elizabeta that her child and one of her friends were possessed and needed to die in order to found salvation. Elizabeta gave in to these voices, and on October 30th, she killed seven-year-old Justin Plaskowatske and five-year-old Olivia Dwaraskowski Justin was Elizabeth's son, while Olivia was spending the night in the Plasky Awaska family home. Number five, a frenzy of extreme violence. In Lutton, England, it's a rough place. Earlier in 2018, crime studies in the UK found that the city was one of the highest burglary rates in all of England and Wales. Lutton is also notorious as a popular home for some of the UK's most fearsome jihadists. 
As recently as July 2019, a 28-year-old man and a 25-year-old woman were arrested in the city and accused of carrying documents implicating them in a forthcoming terror attack. Lutton was the scene of a very different type of horror on May 26, 2015. That night, 32-year-old Jason Nelson, originally from Granada, went to the home of 20-year-old drug dealer Jordan McGuire. The goal was to buy weed. However, Nelson didn't buy anything that night. Instead, he stabbed McGuire several times before fleeing into the night. McGuire managed to cling to life long enough to die in the street like a dog. After the police apprehended the suspect, he claimed that demons were surrounding the men that he murdered and that the demons told him in order to free himself, he had to kill McGuire. Please hold for a word from our sponsor. I asked you, the audience, to share your stories with me, and you did not fail me. I'm about to share with you seven different stories shared with me that out of all of them submitted are by far the creepiest. Seven scary as hell 3 a.m. ghost stories that will make you afraid of the devil's hour even more. The clock strikes three, demons come free. It is an age-old concept and there are firm believers that the devil's hour exists and is not a myth or a superstition. I, for one, if by any chance I wake up at 3 a.m., I'm a little curious as to why it happens, or around that time for that matter. And who wouldn't? It is creepy. The night is dark and full of terrors, after all. But we occasionally love a good horror story, don't we? Also, we love to get scared when we hear someone else's citation of a true incident. Here are a few 3 a.m. ghost stories that will make you afraid of the devil's hour even more. This one was submitted to me. The title is Figure Behind. Hi, I am Sumit from India. I had a weird experience a few nights ago. I woke up at 3.30 a.m. I was on my bed lying down. I saw a shadow or a figure behind the curtain of my room. That curtain was near my washroom door. I looked at it and I heard a sound like a growl. It made that sound when I was actually trying to get up to see what it was. But I was paralyzed and I was trying to shout at it, but I could not even open my mouth. All I could do was just make a humming sound. All of a sudden, it was normal again. I got up in full anger and searched for it. But I thought the growl must have been my dog. But he was asleep. Since that time, I'm a little nervous about that time the next one that i'll share with you is titled the lamp a few years ago one night around 3 a.m my wife and i were sleeping and i felt myself slowly waking up from a really deep sleep my eyes started lifting up and as soon as they focused on the lamp on my dresser it slid off and shattered on the floor my wife and i quickly sat up and looked at each other, horrified at the startling noise. We agreed we would clean it up in the morning and went back to sleep. The next morning when we woke up, the lamp was at the foot of the bed, about five feet from where it fell, completely intact and not broken at all. 
We are still trying to make sense of this. This one was also submitted to me. It's called Down the Stairs. The only one I have is when I was in fourth grade. When I was little, I would always sleep with my door open. I went through a phase where I would wake up between three and four every night. And every single night, I would hear footsteps walking up my stairs around my living room, through my dining room, across my kitchen, and down my hallway. They would always stop right before my doorway, then turn around and go back to the basement. But one night, they didn't stop. What I saw was a shadow of a little girl, really couldn't tell if it was a girl or a boy, walk right in front of the doorway, look at me for a few seconds, and then walked away, back down the stairs. I slept with the door closed the next night. Staring is the next one. My story begins about a year ago when I was sleeping in one of the rooms in my parents' house. I suddenly awoke in the middle of the night at exactly 3 a.m. I stared at my alarm clock when it suddenly turned 3.01 a.m. For some reason, I was staring out the window towards my neighbor's backyard. All of a sudden, their outdoor light turned on for about a minute or so before automatically shutting off. This was no ordinary outdoor light. My neighbors had one of those sensory lights that automatically turned on when someone approached the door or got close to it, usually installed to keep robbers away. What was most interesting about this was that no one was seen going in or out of their house through that door. If there was, I would not have been able to see their shadow. But in this case, the lights turned on for no apparent reason. I did not think about the possibilities after I awoke and until after I started hearing noises about 3 a.m., which is the most spiritualistic time of the night. Just thought I would share that because it seemed to have a lot in common with uh, stories you were asking about. That's all. The next one is called Over the Phone. And this one, of course... Uh, deals more with uh, phone calls late in the night. What if they were affected by a time when our minds are in the sleep state combined with the thinnest veil between our world and the others? What a theory. A very interesting one at that. Every night at 3.37 for a period of a week around the same time that my grandmother had died a year before. I kept getting calls on my phone at exactly 3.57 a.m. every morning. And it sounded like the piano music she used to play when she was still alive. The next one is titled, It Lurks. Ever since I was a child, I have had nightmares where someone drags me out of my bed. I wouldn't be able to talk or breathe. I know this is probably sleep paralysis. The thing is, I grew up Catholic and have always had a fear of the devil. I always wake up at 3 a.m. and pray or turn on my TV until it is 4. I used to joke that I had a demon following me to my friends because I always felt like someone was watching me. My dog used to bark at my closet and my childhood home. Last year, while visiting a friend, I made another joke about my demon haunting me. And right after I made that joke and walked away from the closet, 
I was standing in, a bag fell from the top right down onto where I was standing. The next day, my friend and I took a picture together, and beside me was a strange orb, like Flash, with a clearly visible and ominous face. It made both of us cry. When I moved to my new and current place, things seemed to subside, and I felt normal again. But now I am having sleep paralysis again, and waking up at three in the morning for fear of my life as soon as i wake i stare at one corner of my room because i feel like a presence is there even my fiance woke up and said that she felt scared he doesn't believe in the devil and said it is all in my head last night i had another nightmare where i was trying to call out for help because i felt like something was going to drag me out of bed i woke up and my fiance turned and looked at me and growled I choked him and screamed, and he woke up very angry because he didn't know what the hell was going on. He used to make fun of me and pretend to be a demon and do this, so I thought he was messing around. But it was still very frightening. I know what his snores sound like, and I know what I saw. I can't tell anyone because no one believes me, and I fear for my life now more than ever. I am 12 weeks pregnant and so stressed out that I fear I will miscarry. I am going to see a priest and practice penance and talk to him about what I should do next. Do you think this is in my head? The next one is called Watching Over. I've been waking up at 3 a.m. and I couldn't be able to go back to sleep. I try forcing myself to sleep, but that doesn't work. Sometimes at 3 a.m. I would wake up and I couldn't move. Only my eyes would open. I wouldn't even be able to talk. And I would try talking in my head, wondering why I couldn't move or talk. Having me think someone is taking control of me, and I'm not sometimes. I always feel like someone is watching me. When I was nine, I had someone follow me. I first started seeing her at my grandma's house. But I was so scared I just ran into the room closet and closed it. I looked at my phone and it was 3.12 a.m. for me. Now, and it's been happening to me for two or three years already. I'm too scared to sleep and I like to stay up all the time with my friends on Facebook. Hey guys, good news. The outrageously expensive little blue pill is now generic, which means you can get the prescription medication to treat ED at affordable prices. And Hems makes it extra affordable. You pay just 30 bucks for a month's supply. And right now, get your first online doctor's visit totally free when you go to 4 slash good. That's right, free. Zero copay, no expensive appointments, no awkward face-to-face -face conversations to get your prescription. Hims connects you to doctors online who can evaluate you and, if appropriate, prescribe your ED medication. And a pharmacy sends it right to your door. Hims makes it affordable, private, and incredibly easy. Nobody likes dealing with ED. Now, thanks to Hims, nobody has to. And that's really good news. To start your free online visit, you need to go to this exclusive address, 4 slash good. That's 4 slash good for your free online visit. F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash good. Family is big around here. We're family-owned, family-operated, family-managed. And that means legacy. That means dependability. That means using Granger. With over 1.5 million products and knowledgeable product experts, Granger has whatever we need. And with same-day pickup and next-day delivery options, they have it whenever we need it. 
For over 90 years, businesses like ours have trusted Granger because, like family, Granger's got our back. Call, clickgranger.com, or stop by to see for yourself. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Thing in the Swamp. One of the most intriguing, not to mention chilling, encounters with a Pukwudgie is that of Bill Russo, a retired iron worker or welder who lives in Rainham, Massachusetts. His home was built on a knoll just a few hundred yards away from the Hockamock Swamp. For six years, Bill worked a shift from three in the afternoon until midnight. When he finally got home, it became his habit to take his 80-pound female Rottweiler German Shepherd mix, Samantha, for a late-night walk to get a little exercise and just relax. They walked every single night, not to mention what time of the year it was, and then everything changed one night. On one night in 1995, Bill and Sam went out on their nightly walk at about 1 in the morning. Usually, the two friends walked on the sidewalks towards the center of town and avoided the swamps. That particular night, however, the two changed their routine up a little and cut through his backyard and headed into the deep woods next to the swamps toward an old dam that had once provided much-needed water for an early ironworks. Sammy pulled along with Bill into an area that he calls the High Trees. And when they had gone about a half a mile, they came to a break where a road cut through the swamp. At this point, Samantha began acting up, pulling hard on her leash and looking up at Bill. She trembled and her hair stood on end and looked at her master for protection. Bill asked her, What's wrong, Samantha? I don't see anything. It's okay, baby. We'll go home now. Come on. He tugged on her leash, but she wouldn't move an inch. She was afraid of something, and according to Bill, Sam was not a dog that frightened easily. She just cried and quivered. It was clear that something in the darkness had terrified this poor dog. It wasn't long before Bill began to hear the thing that was frightening his beloved dog. It was faint at first, but it was unmistakable. An eerie voice was calling through the night air, saying, Iwachu, Iwachu. The high-pitched, unnatural voice repeated itself, getting louder and louder and closer at the same time. At first, Bill couldn't see anything, even though there was a street light about 20 feet ahead of him. The lamp cast a bluish circle of light on the pavement in front of him, and then, in Bill's own words, into the circle walked a hairy creature about three or four feet tall, which probably weighed a hundred pounds based on how it looked. What happened next has been haunting Bill for almost 20 years. He watch you. He watch you. Chew. Chew. He watch you. The creature said repeatedly. It stood straight on two legs and stared at Bill. With eyes that were too large for its own head, like the eyes of an owl. The two friends were paralyzed as they watched the creature... But the creature just stood there and didn't appear to be threatening. Samantha trembled, and then she looked at Bill as if to ask, What is it? Bill looked at the dog and said, It's okay, Sam. In a somewhat unconvincing manner, the creature kept speaking and began to motion to him with its arms, asking him to come closer. The creature wasn't wearing any clothing to speak of and was covered in coarse, unkempt hair and was about five or six inches long. The thing that appeared to have a pot belly as well, and Bill took it to be a young stages of old age. 
What in the world was he dealing with? Bill had no idea. What was this thing? Possibilities began running through Bill's mind. Perhaps it was just a local kid dressed up for Halloween. Then he realized that this thing couldn't possibly be a toddler, nor was it any animal that he had seen before. Bill had seen beavers, muskrats, foxes, and bears in the Hawkmock Swamp, but this creature didn't even remotely look like any of those animals. Bill and Samantha stood there looking at the creature for what seemed like hours, but in reality the encounter itself probably lasted only a few minutes. Although it appeared to be friendly and nothing over-threatening could be detected in its mannerisms, Bill had heard stories from other people about bizarre things that they had seen in the swamps, stories that could neither confirm or deny. Bill was scared. The tiny creature was much smaller than he was, and yet he was still very frightened. Worse yet, it was the middle of the night and the thing was talking to him. But eventually, Bill worked up enough courage and asked the creature a few questions. But the only answer that he received was Iwachu, over and over again. It was at this point that Bill and Samantha made a very big circle around the creature and went home as fast as they could. The two friends didn't look back, not even once. When Bill arrived home after the encounter, he was very shaken up about it. He made a big pot of coffee and kept drinking it throughout the night one cup after another. That night, he relived the entire experience over and over again in the confines of his living room. He wondered if he should have tried to talk to the creature more or if he should have at least walked up to it. What was it? What did it say? He asked himself. As near as he could figure, it was trying to speak English and was saying, we want you, we want you, come here, come here. Bill took this to mean that there was more than one of these creatures. Needless to say, Bill didn't get much in the way of sleep that night. To this day, almost 20 years later, Bill doesn't really know why the tiny creature wanted him. He has come to believe that he narrowly avoided his own death that night, but he also regrets not having taken action. If I had been Darwin or Dr. Livingston, he recounts, I would have walked to the thing and would have made a great discovery and would have written a new chapter in human history. But it was just, I was just a weak, frightened man who slinked away and lost a chance to catalog an entirely new species. I am ashamed to admit that I walked away. Did Bill encounter a Pukwudgie that night? He believes that he did, and the description of the creature's appearance and behavior all point out that he may have indeed encountered one of these tiny trolls. If one buys into the legends, then Bill was very wise to walk away from the creature. If he hadn't, then it's very possible that the creatures would have made a meal out of Bill and his faithful dog, Samantha, who passed away, unfortunately, in 1998. The man also believes as more and more of the Hockmock Swamp is filled, such encounters will become more and more commonplace. Who is to say that Bill isn't right? Now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now number one for podcasting. Till death. This was Sarah's first real home with Rick. 
It wasn't an apartment or a house on loan from a family member. They started renting this dream home soon after their wedding. The modest and inviting White House was nestled on a small lot in the heart of the historical downtown district of Boston. It appeared to be the perfect opportunity to start their lives together. Rick and Sarah were newlyweds and were immediately drawn to this perfect little home. For months, the couple enjoyed furnishing and decorating their first real home. They loved living downtown. In the beginning, they thought it was just the noises of a really old house settling. Then strange things began to happen. The first night of the morning slipped around the edges of the white ruffled curtains as the young bride snuggled under the covers. Returning to sleep, she was suddenly startled by noises coming from the kitchen down below. The sounds of dishes clattering, water running, and cupboard doors opening and closing. She soon realized she wasn't home alone in the house. The sound of footsteps on the stairs soon followed the earlier noises. One by one, the footsteps were slow and steady. The stairs were creaking and then the footsteps were heard in the hallway. The footsteps stopped short of her closed bedroom door. Rick? She whispered. She was white knuckling her pillow, not knowing who or what was near her door. Was it an intruder lingering outside her bedroom? Could this be more of the ongoing issues that they have experienced? It went on quite a while before they accepted the fact that there was a restless spirit refusing to let go. When her husband left for work, she would always climb back under the covers, resting before her shift at the hospital later in the day. As she was fading in and out of sleeping and waking up, Sarah would hear movements and sounds downstairs. Sarah became concerned. It sounded like someone doing dishes, only the dishes were already clean and in the cupboard. This time felt very different from the early encounters with the phantom noises and movements. This was the first time the footsteps were heard in the hall and near the door. Rick, she whispered once more, only a bit louder this time. There was no response. She started to stiffen and reach for the baseball bat to the right of their headboard. Sarah walked softly toward the door with the bat in her hand. She was ready for a fight if she had to defend herself. The house was in a safe and upscale neighborhood, but this new noise made her nervous. She carefully placed her hand on the doorknob and jerked open the door. Sarah leapt into the hall, violently swinging the ball bat in every direction she could swing it. There was nothing near her door or in the hall that she could see. Without a second thought, Sarah shouted aloud for whomever or whatever could hear. This isn't funny. Cut the crap out already. I'm trying to sleep. Sarah wasn't really expecting a response to her surprise, though. The laughter of a child could be heard coming from the other end of the hall. Sarah was facing the direction of where the laughter came from. There was nothing physically there, but the laughter was still present. Sarah lowered the bat and stepped back into her room. She shut and locked the door. 
She wasn't expecting a response, especially one of that magnitude. Sarah was completely creeped out by the encounter. Dishes clattering, cabinet doors opening and closing, footsteps and floors creaking was one thing, but phantom laughter was an entirely different level. Sarah went ahead and got ready early for her shift. She told herself that she could go to the staff rooms at the hospital and catch up on her sleep. She was too spooked at this point to stay home and sleep. Sarah was quick about getting herself ready. She focused only on the task at hand, and that was to get ready and get out. After getting dressed, Sarah grabbed her phone and purse. She made a mad dash for the front door and headed outside. Her nerves were unsettled as she turned to lock the door. She called Rick on the way to work. He didn't answer, and the call went to his voicemail. Damn it, Rick, pick up! Sarah shouted into the phone. She threw her phone in anger and bounced it on the floor. Rick was busy and always kept his phone on vibrate while at work. Sarah was hoping that being at work would keep her mind off of what was happening at home. A few hours would pass before Rick would make it home. His routine was simple. He would pull up to the sidewalk, fumble with his keys, let himself in, and toss his keys on the marble foyer table. Rick was so exhausted that he would just go and find a place to lie down for a while. He walked into the living room and dropped into the recliner. As he kicked back to activate the footrest, he fell fast asleep. A few hours went by, and the house was now shrouded in darkness. The sun had set and night had fallen. Rick had slept like the dead. Something familiar started to wake him up from his nap. Soft kisses were being applied to his neck, and the feeling of Sarah crawling onto his lap and straddling him in the recliner was a welcome surprise. You're home early. Did you take some personal time and run home to play around? Keep doing what you're doing, Sarah, Rick said as she continued to kiss his neck and rub his chest. Rick was more than awake from his nap at this point. He started to return the kisses and run his finger through her hair. Sarah's hair felt different. It was always smooth and thick. Now it felt dry with tight curls. Wow, babe, did you hit the salon on the way home? What did you do differently? Rick said as he reached to turn on the floor lamp to get a better look. Upon turning on the light, Rick was surprised to see that it wasn't Sarah who was on top of him. The girl who had been doing these things to him was a young blonde girl with deep blue eyes and a painted on smile. She was wearing a flowing gown that wasn't common for this time period, and she smelled like roses and powder. What the hell? Who are you? How did you get in here? Rick shouted. As he pushed her off of him and rolled out of his chair, he stood up expecting that this girl was some pillhead or a transient looking for some stuff to steal. Rick reached for the fire poker next to his chair, but the girl simply vanished before his eyes. What the? Rick said to himself. The sounds of footsteps running up the stairs could be heard. A door slammed and the sound of a girl crying soon followed. Rick was at a total loss for words as to what his next move should be. The ringing of his cell phone broke his concentration. With his hand shaking, he reached for the phone. Hello? Hello? Rick said in a stammering manner. He didn't even bother to check the caller ID on his phone. Rick just reached for it and picked it up. Sarah was on the other end of the phone. Rick, you sound weird. 
Are you okay? Sarah asked. Me? A am I okay? You're not going to believe what just happened here, Rick replied. He went on from there to tell her everything that had just occurred. Rick held nothing back. Rick, you're not going to believe what happened to me, Sarah responded. Rick listened with open ears to her experience from earlier in the day as well. Sarah's shift would be ending in a couple of hours. They both decided to meet at their new favorite coffee house that was down the street. There, they would discuss face-to-face -face what their next move was going to be. After ending the phone call, Rick slipped his shoes back onto his feet and grabbed his keys. He had no intentions of sitting alone in that house any longer than he had to. The sound of water running could be heard coming from upstairs. Rick's focus shifted from the front door to the upstairs at that point. What's that? Rick said aloud. He walked slowly to the bottom of the staircase. Hello? Rick called out, hoping for a reply. Heavy sobbing could be heard coming from the upstairs. Rick thought to himself, this is nuts. Who the hell is that? He slowly started to climb the stairs, one foot in front of the other. Rick's heart began beating faster with every step he took. The closer he got to the top of the stairs, the louder the crying got, and the more the water was running. Who's up there? Show yourself, Rick shouted. He was at the top of the stairs before he noticed that water was all over the floor in the front of the bathroom. Without a second thought, Rick walked down the hall towards the bathroom. The door was cracked and he pushed it the rest of the way open. Upon peering into the bathroom, Rick was dumbstruck by what he saw. Lying face down in the bathtub was a woman in what looked like a wedding gown. Water was overflowing and saturating the runner of the hallway. Rick ran into the bathroom in an attempt to help this mystery woman who was in the tub. He tried to stop short of the clawfoot tub, but the floor was too wet and he slipped. Rick's head made contact with the edge of the tub. His feet bounced off and threw him back to the floor with extreme force. Rick's head smacked hard on the tile floor. He had the wind knocked out of him and didn't feel as if he could get back up. The room started spinning, and he could feel himself fading in and out of consciousness. The woman who he saw lying face down in the water filled tub was now standing over him. It was the same blonde girl who he had encountered downstairs. His head started to pound. The mystery woman knelt down, smiled compassionately at him, and grabbed his hand to hold. Rick placed his other hand at the base of his head and brought his hand back to his face. My hand is covered in blood. Oh, my head, Rick thought to himself before he passed out. He awoke what felt like only moments later. He found himself walking along the street. He had no idea where he was and how he had ended up there. How did I end up here? Where am I? Rick said aloud. It was now daytime, and the first person on his mind was Sarah. He searched feverishly for his phone, but it wasn't on him. He approached a woman walking near him. Excuse me, miss, where am I right now? Do you know the time? Rick asked as he approached her. The woman let out a scream and ran away from him. Rick was surprised and just as scared as she was. Rick kept walking as he could only think about Sarah. Everyone he approached seemed to be scared of him and would run away. This confused Rick greatly. 
he finally decided to hail a taxi and give the driver his address. The taxi driver took one look at him and sped away. Frustrated, Rick found a man using a phone. He ran over to him and begged him to use it. The man threw his phone at Rick and ran away. What the hell is wrong with you people? I need help. Why will no one help? Rick cried aloud. Rick noticed that the man he approached threw his cell phone at him. He ran over and picked it up in order to call Sarah. Rick quickly dialed her number and waited. A strange man answered her phone. Rick shouted into the phone, Sarah, Sarah, who the hell is this? I need to speak with Sarah. Where is my wife? The voice responded, Sir, I think you have the wrong number. Who are you trying to reach? Rick fired back. Who am I trying to reach? Who the hell is this? I'm calling my wife's number, Sarah Sullivan. This is Rick, her husband. There was a long pause in the other end of the phone, followed by the stranger clearing his throat. He responded, Sir, I'm really sorry. I'm certain that you have the wrong number. Uh, Mrs. Sullivan is making arrangements for her husband's funeral. He's going to be buried in a couple of days. He died at their home last night. Horrified by this news, Rick dropped the phone and fell back against the store window. He turned and looked at his reflection in the glass and saw blood all over the top of his head and a huge bruise on his forehead and the side of his face was swollen and red. Standing next to him was the same mystery woman from his house. She was the same woman who he had an encounter with in the recliner and was holding his hand as he was lying on the floor. She said to Rick, it's going to be fine, my love. You will be with me forever now. Death has brought us together. Rick let out a guttural scream. No! no! Well, that's it for today. See you next time on Paranormally Speaking. I'm Neil Parks, your host.